Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It is a great pleasure to have you with us. We have with us today Professor Dave Sorensen from the uh, Air War College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama to talk to us about the current situation in the Middle East and especially the implications for American security and for regional security of the changing relationships in this region where once upon a time... There were, was one empire. Now, of course, we have competitions between the remnants of several empires and also the memories of multiple empires. And so we think about the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example, the way that it affects the United States. So welcome, Professor Sorensen. Thank you very much. So um, I am curious, right, from an American perspective, right, Americans think a lot about the relationship with Saudi Arabia. They think a lot about the uh, conflict with Iran going on. 40 plus years. And how is the current relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, changing uh, to uh, affect security policy in the broader region? Saudi Arabia and Iran became rivals really in 1979 after Ayatollah Khomeini denounced the royal family of Saudi Arabia as illegitimate. The Quran has no place for kings. You don't belong there. You're not religious enough. The other thing that happened in 1979 was when terrorists took over the Grand Mosque, uh, arguing that the Al Saud family was not conservative enough, not Islamic enough. Mm-hmm. And those two events not only made Saudi Arabia much more religious, but much more concerned that Iran was trying to destabilize not only Saudi Arabia, but the other Gulf Emirates that have Shia populations. So the hostility has continued. It certainly got worse when there were tanker attacks in the Gulf of Oman, the, the Arabian Sea, that were alleged to have been carried out by Iran. And of course, Iran apparently targeted some major oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. So it's bad, and I would argue it is getting worse. It's getting worse. And uh, when I think of it from the historical perspective, right, the, one of the reactions of the House of Saud to the Iranian challenge is to become more conservatively religious itself as well, right? To to outbid uh, the Iranians for leadership of the uh, Islamic world? There is a competition between my Islam is bigger than yours. Uh, <laughs> as, as Saudi Arabia has a Shia population, but the Iranian narrative has not just been towards the Shia. It is that we should be the leader of the entire Muslim world because our Islam is revolutionary, because our Islam is more pure than your Islam. Our Islam hasn't been corrupted like your Islam has been. And of course, Saudi Arabia's counter has been to propagate Saudi Arabian conservative Islam 
Islam, not only in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, but really throughout much of the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia funds mosques, Saudi Arabia funds religious education, uh, built a huge center in Dakar, Senegal, for example, of all places. Millions of dollars by the, you know, the King Faisal Conference Center. That's all Saudi Arabian money, and that goes on again throughout the Muslim world. So it's a competition where Saudi Arabia is spending money. It's a competition where Iran is supporting uh, insurgent groups and uh, kind of sub-state actors. So it is an intense competition, and it really has not slowed down. Well, and let me take a step further back as a uh, from a historical perspective. It's one thing to talk about 40 years of history, but what about the thousands of years of history between Persians and Arabs? Does this does this express itself in their relationship? Absolutely. The uh, the Saudi the Saudi Arabia was obviously the the heart of of where Muhammad built his first caliphate, and as the Muslim armies left the Arabian Peninsula in what is now modern Saudi Arabia, they headed into what was then Persia, uh, the Sassanid uh, dynasty, and. They battled in the Zagros Mountains. They ultimately did bring Islam into the Persian uh, area. But this battle between people who dis- trace their descendancy back to ancient Persia and the people who trace their descendancy back to the very early days of of the Sunni Muslim uh, 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 caliphate uh, goes back for many, 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 many centuries. So, And they dredged this history back up. Uh, Iran is very proud of its history that, again, it, it's even its pre-Islamic history, it views itself as a legitimate empire. Uh, Saudi Arabia, again, reflects back on the, the early uh, Sunni caliphates through the Umayyad, the Abbasid, later, of course, the Ottoman Empire. So in a sense, it's, it's a historical clash between two ideals, but also two cultures, the Persian culture and the Arab culture. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of old empires, you mentioned the Ottomans, and uh, the, there's a lot of talk these days about the uh, efforts by uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey to reestablish a kind of uh, Ottomanist vision for the Middle East. And yet, where does Turkey fit in in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Turkey is, in a sense, kind of in the middle because Turkey has supported political Islamic groups like the Muslim Brothers in Egypt. Uh, Saudi Arabia deeply opposes Muslim Brotherhood groups because they argue that insurgency is no way to change politics. There's a, there's a statement in the Quran that is roughly, it is better to tolerate uh, anarchy and, and, and or misrule rather than go back to the pre-Islamic time that they've referred to as jahiliya or confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, revolution is simply banned uh, in, the, uh, in the Hanbali school of Islam. And so Turkey supporting the Muslim Brothers and other Muslim Brothers uh, groups has uh, has really clashed with Saudi Arabia. And you see it, for example, even in Libya, mm-hmm. because you're exactly right. Uh, the Turkish vision under founder Kemal Ataturk was zero problems with the neighbors. We, we're abandoning the Ottoman legacy. We're concerned about Turkey. Our, our narrative is Turkishness. Recep Tayyip Erdogan has really changed all of that. The old adage under under Ataturk was zero problems with the neighbors. Now the adage is zero neighbors without problems, because <laughs> in a sense Erdogan has picked a fight with virtually every one of his neighbors. And of course, the the complexity spins out even further when you consider that Turkey is in a treaty relationship with the United States through NATO. Saudi Arabia does not have the same sort of 
of treaty relationship, but the strategic partnership, if you will, between Saudi Arabia and the United States has been a de facto uh, reality in international affairs. Uh, where does this leave the United States? Does the United States, for example, try to encourage the Turks and the Saudis to make nice in order to contain Iran? Or does the United States try to avoid the subject uh, so that so as not to open the door for Iran to push in between these two allies? I think it's more the latter. I think the United States has kind of hoped this would go away. Uh, the Trump's position has been um, kind of both sides. Trump, Trump has tried to support Erdogan, but when Turkey decided to buy the S-400 Russian-made air defense missile, uh, the United States suspended F-35 sales. That was a huge piece of American-Turkish relations mm -hmm. because Turkey was co-producing the aircraft, was scheduled to buy 100 of them. Uh, that's all on hold right now. But with Saudi Arabia, the United States continues to sell Saudi Arabia advanced uh, equipment, we have something like $75 billion of at least negotiated contracts. It doesn't mean we're going to sell them $75 billion, but that's what they've signed up for. Uh, so you know, I would argue that under the Trump administration, the U.S. has leaned somewhat in the direction of Saudi Arabia. The president feels a kinship to the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, whereas Trump has also threatened Turkey with, with tariffs uh, in addition to the F-35 sale suspension. So American relations with Turkey are getting a little bit more strained. But it's also interesting that Turkey and the United States are on the opposite side sort of in Libya, although, mm -hmm. quite frankly, the United States has supported both sides. Right. Uh, I think there's a bit of confusion about That's one way to keep from charge. having it being on the opposite side is to be on all sides. You can try to be on both sides. And, and while the U.S. has supported the U.N.-recognized government of national authority, uh, President Trump has also encouraged the, uh, the rebel leader, uh, General Khalifa uh, Haftar, to uh, go ahead and, and keep on assaulting Tripoli. So we are kind of playing both sides of the fence in that one. I mean, the, the more one talks about these relationships, the more things spin wider and wider. And of course, I want to bring back to the discussion of the Middle East is there was a time uh, in the 70s, in the 80s, when Saudi Arabia and Iran were competing for leadership of the uh, Muslim world. The best way to compete was to be the stronger advocate of the Palestinians against Israel. And yet today we have this much reflected upon uh, secret, not so secret rapprochement between Riyadh and Jerusalem. And so where does that, that relationship with Israel? I mean, when I think about the relationship between the Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Israel, there's an anti Iran element to it. There's also a uh, pro-American element to it, since the United States would like nothing better. Where where are we with that, and where's that likely to go? The United States has encouraged rapprochement with uh, with uh, between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, and you see that I was in uh, Jerusalem last year. We actually spoke to uh, Ambassador Friedman, and his argument is that. A, the Palestinians have become so marginalized that they really don't matter in the Arab world anymore. Mm -hmm. And B, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel have a common enemy in Iran. And so there is both open discussion and a lot of quieter cooperation. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, again, the crown prince, the most powerful figure in Saudi Arabia, said to the Palestinians, get over it. Uh, you're going to have to learn to live with Israel, which was an earthquake given the previous Saudi support for, uh, for the Palestinians. And uh, if... When I look at the when I look at the current events, right, the United States has finally, after after multiple years, right, the American Crown Prince uh, Jared Ben Charlie uh, <laughs> did come did come across with a, a plan for uh, the deal of the century for dealing with uh, 
with uh, the Israeli-Palestinian question. And yet, uh, am I correct to say that the response from the Arab world has not been as enthusiastic as the Trump administration would have hoped? It was interesting that several Arab leaders were there with Jared Kushner when he presented for the second time, actually, the mm-hmm. the uh, deal of the century. Uh, and they nodded, they assented, but it was very clear that their very lukewarm words were not necessarily an endorsement of the proposal. I think they understand that in many ways this proposal is simply dead on arrival uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, The Palestinians would have to accept Israeli settlers. The Palestinian state would be a patchwork quilt which would be unconnected. The Palestinians had no control over their borders or their airspace. Uh, And in exchange for $50 billion, of which it was very unclear where that was coming from, Mm -hmm. the Palestinians would get a temporary freeze on new Israeli settlements. Now, the reality is I was in Israel again last uh, last March, and the Israelis are slowing down the settlements anyway because they're running out of land, (laughs) and the political impact of the settlements has been accomplished which is that it now allows for the possibility of annexation of much of the West Bank, including the Jordan Valley, uh, to Israel. And Netanyahu has offered to do that. And, of course, the Israelis are facing uh, political turmoil, right? We saw just uh, just recently uh, Mrs. Netanyahu formally pled guilty to corruption charges. The corruption charges hang over the head of Prime Minister Netanyahu. By, by the time the audience is listening to this, we don't know what will have happened also with upcoming uh, Israeli elections. And yet, uh, even if... Uh, uh, Netanyahu uh, and uh, and and Benny Gantz are neck and neck in these elections. Uh, the one thing they don't seem to disagree on is policy towards the Palestinians. Right. That this is no longer a an argument in Israeli politics. Right. Uh, right. And uh, I wonder. Right. There was a time, of course, when lots of Americans would say, "Boy, I wish the day would come when the Israeli-Palestinian question was no longer the first thing people thought about in the Middle East." And we are kind of at that point. Um, but that doesn't mean the problem has been solved. It just no. means nobody talks about it. That's right. And does this is this just then uh, repressing something that is bound to bubble up in some other negative way somewhere else? That's the one thing that I'm just not sure of. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went up to the Palestinian territories. Uh, we heard from the embassy that there's not a lot of concern about another intifada or Palestinian mm-hmm. uprising, that the Palestinians have have, in a sense, been worn down by all of the struggle. And they're also worn down by the fact that most Arab countries don't support them anymore. Mm-hmm. They were getting some money from Qatar. Uh, Hamas was getting some Iranian money. The Qataris have slowed down that funding. Uh, Qatar, of course, and Saudi Arabia are in a rivalry themselves. Right. But even the Qataris have suspended aid to the Palestinians. The Palestinian territory that they control is in dire poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unemployment rate is 35 to 70 percent, depending on what figures one looks at. There's a shortage of food and medicine and potable water. Uh, it really is a mess. But the United States has cut off most of the aid that we were giving to the Palestinians through the U.N. Uh, even the U.N. itself is cutting back on aid. It's a desperate situation, but uh, as, as I travel around Israel and ask questions about, do you really think there's going to be an uprising? The answer came back, well, 
There will be a few, but unless the so-called Islamic State arises back in that area, and they were competing for a while with Hamas, mm-hmm. uh, we don't see anything other than kind of desperate hanging on by the uh, Palestinians, that the the urge to, to overthrow Israel uh, is, is simply suspended. They're just worn out. I, I can't help thinking uh, to go back to... Uh uh, Tacitus, right? They've made a desert and they call it peace, yes. right? Is is uh, to to leave the Palestinians dispirited and miserable uh, and abandoned um, might bring a sort of quiet, but it doesn't really bring peace. And does it bring a peace that is worthy of a state that claims to be democratic, like Israel, or a state like the United States, which claims to be democratic and want to support self determination? I think that, unfortunately, for both the Israelis and, and for the United States, uh, the Palestinians are just not worth investing in. And the tragedy of that is that the Palestinians are quite well educated, many of them, partly because unemployment is high, they go to universities, uh, and they're very hardworking. People mm-hmm. say that when you see the Palestinians and work in the rest of the Arab world, they're hard workers, they're well educated, they're, they're very stable. Um, and, and for the Israelis not to try to improve the life of the Palestinians, to me, is, is uh, it's a moral tragedy. But again, uh, democracies also tend to, to push back unseemly problems or s- unseemly unsolvable problems mm-hmm. in a way that makes them go away. And I think that's the choice that the Israelis and the, Palesti- and the uh, United States have made on the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Palestinians, of course, part of, their, uh, part of their tragedy is that their alleged friends have been more than happy to keep the uh, crisis brewing without offering any solutions themselves. And exactly. Now, and now, so after being mistreated in that way, now they're now they're now they're mistreated in the sense that their former friends are saying, you know, we're not even going to bother keeping this problem on the boil. Right. We're going to make our separate deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one would think this provides an opportunity for the Islamic State or for uh, or for Iran for basically for the kind of um, movements that would that would be so anti-system that they would encourage uh, major violence. Right. Uh, and the question of how does one guarantee security in a region when there is this kind of of unsolvable problem lurking in the background? Um, how do you make foreign policy that way? It's hard. Uh, it's interesting that even Iran has cut back on support to the Palestinians, as they've cut back on support to Hezbollah and to uh, the Houthi in Yemen, partly because the concern that their their population is very unhappy. Mm-hmm. Recent elections were interesting in that the so-called reformers really took a beating in the in the uh, parliamentary elections. And I think part of that is just despair that you're not spending money on the Iranians, you're sending money to these different uh, groups outside of Iran. So the Palestinians in many ways have been abandoned by virtually everybody. Mm -hmm. And again, the squalor is just horrendous, but there's been very little effort to try to to turn the situation around. So... Hmm. The other thing the Israelis seem to be confident is that the Palestinians are so blockaded by not only the Israelis, but also their good friends, the Egyptians, that they're confident that no weapons are really getting in. Now, the Palestinians are making some weapons out of old tubes. I saw some of the homemade rockets that they fired in. This is something you could make in a high school metal shop. It's some gunpowder and fins welded onto a tube. But that's all they have, and the rockets are really very, very inefficient. They really aren't all that dangerous. They mostly go bang in the night. Uh, but the Israelis are confident the Palestinians have not gotten uh, even even handheld weapons. So that also f- 
for in the mind of the Israelis and the Americans, because I heard this in the in the embassy, they really have dismissed the Palestinians as well. They're unhappy people, but they're not really a security threat anymore. That is a, uh, as I say, the odd example of one can get what one thought one was wishing for, and it's still not terribly satisfactory. Right. Um, and certainly not satisfactory for the people uh, in the Palestinian territories. Well, going back to another place in the region that is uh, both unhappy and, and is drawing attention from all quarters. Let's talk about Syria for a moment. Um, that you know, Syria right now is the kind of place where the Saudis, the Turks, the Iranians, and the Russians, um, and the Americans to a lesser extent, right? We are all interested in one way or another um, in a kind of uh, interconnected uh, dance. Uh, that's very much like a, a square dance, right? Sometimes you, sometimes you bow to your partner, sometimes you bow to your corner. Um, how should we understand the, the current, what looks like the end game in Syria? The end game is winding up in Idlib, where a revolution that started in March 2011 is finally coming to an end. Uh, the cost has been horrific. I, I lived in Damascus and Aleppo years ago, and it, to me it's a personal tragedy because I know that much of the neighborhoods and the, much of the country has been destroyed. The cost in lives is over 500,000 that we know of. The UN has simply stopped counting. Half the country's population is displaced. So whoever wins the Syrian civil war has won a corpse in mm -hmm. many ways. Now, Iran supported the Assad regime partly for religious reasons because the Assads belong to an interesting offshoot of Shia Islam known as the Alawi. But they also support it for strategic reasons. Iran has no other country partner other than Syria. Mm -hmm. Russia made the same decision to support the Assad regime, partly because of old historical connections between the Russians and kind of the Islamic, uh, uh, or not the Syrian uh, re Republic back before it, it transformed. Russia probably gets a seaport at Tartus, which quite frankly isn't all that good. But Russia has gotten a foothold uh, by supporting the Assad regime. So in a sense, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, who also opposed Assad, the United States, who funded various different groups like the so-called Free Syrian Army, uh, are really on the losing end. It is, it is clear that the Assad regime is going to prevail. It is clear that the tragedy is hopefully winding up because, again— Turkey alone has 4 million or so Syrian refugees, and that's just the official number. I think it's higher. Hmm. So in a sense, Russia and Iran have won in the Syrian civil war, but again, what they've gotten is a basket case country that probably will take 30 or 40 years to recover, if at all. If at all. And neither Russia nor Iran is in any position to offer the kind of massive uh, re uh, recovery assistance that Syria would need. It is argued that a third of a trillion dollars would be required to rebuild Syria back to where it was in 2010. And that won't happen until 2034, uh, according to the World Bank. So you're absolutely right. Iran is, Iran is facing a collapsed economy anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, GDP growth, the last estimate was negative 3%. Inflation at 30 to 40 to 70%, depending on who you listen to. Uh, and Russia doesn't either. Russia's got its own economic challenges. Uh, and so neither one are prepared to offer uh, the Syrian regime anything that would approximate a Syrian reconstruction. Uh, and so what I think is going to happen is that Assad is never going to be able to gain control of the whole country. And it's partly it's because it's been so destroyed. So I th what we're seeing is the rise of the so-called Islamic State. We're seeing the rise of other 
Sunni jihadi Salafist groups in Syria. So I think that Syria, in the end, could be the next uh, hotbed for the rise of of Islamist militant groups, very much as Iraq was. Or, or I was just thinking, this also sounds a lot like Afghanistan, yes. uh, that you have a completely failed state with a central and effective central government. Right. So, exactly. Uh, I have to ask, uh, from the perspective of American security, right, the the decision not to intervene more directly in the Syrian conflict early earlier was partially a reaction against uh, failed failed interventions in Iraq and in Libya. And right. the joke is, right, in in. Uh, in Iraq, the United States intervened and stayed, and it was a disaster. In Libya, we intervened and didn't stay, and it was a disaster. And in mm-hmm. Syria, we haven't intervened, and it was a disaster too. Um, have, what's what's the lesson out of all that? I think <laughs> that the Obama administration uh, made the right choice not to intervene. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in full disclosure, I was part of the group that was asked to consult for the administration out in the far beltway. There were, there were many, many of us. I, I don't want to take responsibility for it or blame for it. <laughs> but uh, the we, we looked at all these. Who should you support if you support? Do they have a fighting chance? And the answer was no, no, and no. There really isn't anybody you, you can support. Uh, and if you support the Assad regime, you're supporting a regime that in many ways has lost control of the country, represents a small minority. Uh, it's probably better to stay out and, and do what you can to try to help the displaced people, the humanitarian crisis. But to intervene on behalf of any of the rebel sides uh, would be a mistake because, again, this will be mm-hmm. – it'll be a sinkhole. The, the more you struggle, the deeper you're going to get drawn in. Has the international community done enough for the displaced people of, from the Syrian civil war? I think the answer to that is really no. They've tried. Uh, Turkey has tried. Jordan has tried. Even Lebanon has tried. Lebanon, it's almost a third of Lebanon's population are Syrian refugees. Uh, and again, even in Jordan, 600,000 displaced people in northern Jordan, they're drawing down Jordan's water, among other things. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing their best. Uh, the problem is that other countries simply won't accept the Syrian refugees for all kinds of backlash reasons. Uh, so I would argue that you're seeing Syrians living in, in dire misery, uh, even in the countries where they're trying to be helpful. I have a series of photos I show in my discussion on the Syrian civil war, and the conditions are just dismal. And they have no hope of going back because Assad doesn't want them back. Mm-hmm. Many of them left everything they had behind. Uh, Assad has said, well, if you want to come back, show us the deed to your house. It's not exactly the thing you're going to grab when the bombs are falling on your house. So I would argue that the Syrian refugees are in many ways doomed uh, to live very much like the Rohingya in uh, in Bangladesh, are doomed to live this tragic existence of refugees uh, probably for many decades to come. Well, and of course, the Middle East is not uh, unfamiliar with this, right? I think about the the uh, Palestinian refugees who occupied all those camps in uh, Jordan for many years. And they're still and, and there. They're still there. Yes. And so the question is, will there come a time when someone, either a leader of these Syrian uh, displaced peoples or perhaps local uh, other power brokers who decide to encourage them, decide to create a kind of Syrian irredentism that means that we're, we're going to face a long-term, ongoing, unsolvable civil war. I Syria. think that's w- what is most likely to happen. Uh, the Syrian refugees will at some point begin to organize, if only out of despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that certainly terrorist groups can begin to form inside those uh, refugee communities. 
Uh, the tragedy is that Syrians very much are, they're hardworking people like the Palestinians. They're often pretty well educated. And in Europe, a lot of Syrian doctors and dentists and pharmacists and engineers are beginning to find work. Uh, it has been successful. It's a long ways to go, to be sure. Right. But they are beginning to integrate in Europe, and they are beginning to assimilate. And I would argue that for countries like Turkey, take advantage of the fact that many of these people are certainly eager to work, uh, begin to try to settle them, because living in refuge camps is a recipe for disaster. Indeed. One last question, right? We've, we've talked about several different aspects, and there are no... Uh, uh, I don't see any any hopeful signs yet, but I want to ask about the situation in Iran, the possibility of, uh, you talked about the problems with the economy, the problems with the government, right? the issue of, is uh, is there the possibility of internal change in Iran, democratization of the Iranian regime from, from a Western perspective? In an interesting sense, the 2009 stolen elections were a wake-up call for the Iranian leadership. Uh, they realized that pressure was building, that the populace was unhappy about economic mismanagement. Clerics are not particularly good at running the economy. And so in 2013, they ultimately allowed a relatively free election for the president to occur. And Hassan Rouhani, who was a reformer, won that election, re-elected in 2017 with 57% of the vote. The problem was that a lot of his support was based on support for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iranian nuclear deal negotiated by the U.S. and seven other partners. President Trump took the U.S. out of that agreement and imposed even harsher sanctions on Iran. So the Rouhani uh, regime staked its claim on the relaxation of sanctions, better economic performance because of their adherence to the nuclear deal. Once the Trump administration pulled out, Rouhani lost credibility. Mm. And so I think that what is going to happen is the hardliners are going to try to dig in more power. It was interesting in this recent election, just last week, that the turnout was extremely low. People mm -hmm. said, I don't want to vote for Rouhani because he disappointed us. I don't want to vote for the hardliners. I've kind of given up. <laughs> so I think Iran, the Iranian population is turning inward. They're trying to, their own methods to survival. It's becoming more of a barter state, but... Uh, deep, deep, deep disappointment. So I don't see the prospects for democracy opening up because the argument is, well, we tried democracy and it hasn't worked. Uh, we're just as bad off as we were before democracy. Well, I will say that one of the, the this has been a very interesting uh, tour de raison of the, uh, of the Middle East. Unfortunately, as you say, there's not, uh, there's no easy answers. There's no easy solutions. Uh, we do hope though, Dave Sorensen, that you will come back again to talk to us about the next developments in the region. But for now, uh, thanks so much for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please uh, send us your comments uh, uh, about this program and about all of our programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. But uh, until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.